Um, if you were blessed to have a trustworthy brother or sister, raise your hand. You, you grew up with a trustworthy brother or sister. Okay, good. All right, hands down. If you had such a nice sibling, I'd like you to imagine this scenario, okay? Your brother or sister says, I'm going to drive out and get a snow cone. Do you want one? Right? And your answer is, yes, dreamsicle, please. Um, to which your sibling replies, okay, I'll be right back and I will bring you a dreamsicle snow cone. Later, when your sibling returns, what do you expect to see in their hand for you? A dreamsicle snow cone, right? Think it through like this. You expect the prediction of the sibling to come true. And when you see the first promise fulfilled, I'll be right back, then you, you naturally, we all just do this, you zero in on the second promise, which is I'll bring you a snow cone, right? All right, keep that logic in mind as we read Jesus' predictions in Mark chapter 14. Open your Bible to Mark chapter 14. And turn there and listen as my friend Sarah reads verses 27 through 31. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will fall away, because it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told them, Even if everyone falls away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to him, Today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he kept insisting, if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And they all said the same thing. Thank you very much, Sarah. Thank you. As we point out in your notes, you got a, uh, a little mini bulletin as you came in. Uh, if you're with us online, so thrilled to be studying with you. Make sure you, uh, your host can remind you of where the, uh, where the bulletin is. You can download it there, pull it down. Uh, you'll see there the first of four predictions we have in your notes. Jesus makes four predictions in this whole speech. Number one, all will scatter. 1066, William of Normandy invaded England to press his uh, right to the throne. The other claimant for the throne of England was Harold, who had been recently proclaimed monarch. Um, Harold's forces, his English forces, met William's Norman forces uh, here near Hastings. Now, by medieval standards, this was a really long battle. It stretched from 9 in the morning until almost sunset. By the way, the English held the high ground at Hastings. And despite the fact that they made a number of mistakes, the Brits probably should have won the battle. What doomed them was the sudden death of Harold, their leader. When the king went down, the English forces just fell apart. They were scattered and the Normans were triumphant. Jesus, talking to his disciples as they're walking out to the Garden of Gethsemane, he predicts that kind of outcome to the disciples' battle. It's a spiritual fight that his followers are having, but they're going to be scattered just as was predicted in Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 13 said, I strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. When Jesus is taken, his disciples are going to flee just like the English army will a thousand years later. That's prediction number one. Prediction number two, Jesus will rise. Now, of course, this is patently absurd. Nonetheless, Jesus, you do realize rising from the dead is absurd. And yet Jesus has promised this a number of times already. He has very boldly and very frankly declared that he will rise again on the third day after dying. What would that mean? That would mean that death itself would be undone. I saw an interview once in which I heard J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter series, uh, reveal that she tried, when writing the Harry Potter books, she tried to hide her upbringing in Christianity. Now, I found that intriguing. By the way, her motive is not what you would think. It wasn't to try and escape worldly criticism, which is useless. And by the way, she felt she was far too liberal a church person to get any criticism. She learned about that. Um, Jones said, Jones said she hid her church membership because, and I'm quoting here, I didn't want to give away the ending of the Potter series. 
Even raised in a somewhat unbiblical church, Rowling couldn't help being influenced by Jesus. And Jesus was the inspiration for that, that climactic scene with, with Harry Potter. Harry raises from the dead because Rowling envisioned him as a Christ figure. Unlike Harry Potter, Jesus is real, and he really did conquer Voldemort. I, I, mean, I mean death. Prediction number three, Jesus says, I'll meet you in Galilee. He'll meet them in Galilee. Now, the, that's not just about physical location. That's tantamount to saying that he is offering them a calling to continue his work no matter what happens. They are never to quit sharing the truth. They are to meet him in Galilee, their old haunt. They are to keep pressing on. When I was in seventh grade, I was in the state champion wrestling uh, tournament. And um, did you laugh at me in my singlet? And by the way, that's not even me. I couldn't find that picture. That poor kid is suing. I just hope you know. Um, I, I, uh, I was wrestling my, my friend and rival, very, very good wrestler who wrestled uh, for a long, long time collegiately, internationally, uh, David, my buddy, and I was one point ahead with time expiring. Uh, Renda had just done his best, and he was a very good takedown artist. He had just done his best takedown move. I had countered it. I was going to win the match. I heard something that I thought was a buzzer, and I stood up, and I smiled, and I relaxed. I had won the match, only it wasn't the buzzer. David stood there for a second, looked at me, realized I had stopped. He shot in, took me down, and got two points right at the end as time expired. Later, when I was in the locker room with my coach, I thought the man was going to have a stroke. He hammered that day, and I'll never forget it, into my thick skull this. Never stop until the referee makes you. When Jesus says, go to Galilee, that's what he's telling the disciples. No matter what, no matter if you think it's over, it's not over. Never quit doing what I have given you to do. You know what he's calling for here when he says, I'll meet you in Galilee? He's calling for grit. And by the way, we're studying one of the grittiest passages in the Bible. And since we're studying this gritty passage, I thought it would be appropriate to share some quotes from my favorite books on grit. Here's one. This is from Angela Duckworth, her book, Grit. She, says three brick, she tells this story. Three bricklayers are asked, what are you doing? The first says, I'm laying bricks. The second says, I'm building a church. The third says, I'm building the house of God. The first bricklayer has a job. The second has a career. The third has a calling, close quote. Jesus says, go to Galilee. You have a calling to build the house of God. You are building God's church. Fourth prediction, Peter will deny Jesus thrice. Three times before the rooster crows twice. It doesn't get a whole lot more specific than that, does it? But Peter says, look what Peter says, Jesus, you're wrong, <laughs> which is really hilarious given that he supposedly trusts Jesus as, as fully God, the Son of Man. In fact, all the disciples claim that they have plenty of grit in their own. They will stand strong. All right, so let's see how it plays out. I'd like you to follow along as Ethan reads um, uh, verses 32 through 42. Now, 32 through 42 is about Jesus' agony in Gethsemane. Uh, listen to this. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. He went a little farther, fell to the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all these things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. 
The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once again he went away and prayed, saying the same thing. And again he came and found them sleeping, because they could not keep their eyes open. They did not know what to say to him. Then he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The time has come. See, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. Thank you, Ethan, very much. Thank you. Jesus has the grit to battle. By the way, that is what Gethsemane is. It is a war zone. I want you to look at these insights into how Jesus fights. He engages friends, right? He says, come, come with me. You three come along especially. And yet, and yet, he fights alone because everyone must. Everyone must. This is, a, this is a balance that is remarkably clear in Scripture and yet remarkably hard for human beings to live out. We all need redeemed community, but no one else can live our life for us. There's an almost exact parallel in Galatians uh, chapter 6. Look at this. Carry one another's burdens. In this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Let each person examine his own work Then he can take pride in himself alone and not compare himself with someone else. For each person will have to carry his own load. The the, the elements of Gethsemane are all right there. Look, these are the elements of Gethsemane. These are the elements of Galatians chapter 6. Watch and pray so you aren't tempted. You think you're something when you're nothing. Be gentle. Restore people in a passion of gentleness, says the first verse of Galatians 6. Watch, pray so you aren't tempted. Secondly, restore, carry, live in community. Love. That's the law of Jesus. Thirdly, each person has to carry your own load. Like Jesus, we have got to engage with our friends in our battles, but we have to quit asking other people to do everything for us. Second part of Jesus' battle, he expresses his distress to the Father. Jesus is honest to God the Father. The God-man aches, understandably so, and he takes that hurt directly to the Father. Um, as, As you may know, I have a son who fights a battle with severe mental illness every day. Now, you may not know this, on rare occasions, Mike's brain will experience a temporary sensory shutdown. I remember vividly the very first time that Mike lost his eyesight. Uh, The episode only lasted a few minutes. To him, it must have seemed like an eternity. And what he said to me that night was brilliant. Sitting there in his blindness, Mike said to me, I'm okay. I just need you, Dad. Please keep talking with me and I can get through this. That's what Jesus does in Gethsemane. He goes to the Father in his pain. Jesus' third strategy may be even more important. He speaks the prayer that never fails. Prayer that never fails, not my will, but yours be done. Think, folks, in nearly every week of our lives, there are moments where the pain of this broken world is overwhelming. In those moments when our plans have failed, when when everything looks irreparable, it is incredibly freeing to remember the truth of God's sovereignty, to wrestle with Him and say, not what I will, but what you will. And in nearly every week of our lives, there are moments too sublime and too serendipitous for us to even fathom. We realize our plans are too small, our fears are too big, the blessings are beyond imagining. In those moments, it is incredibly important to remember the truth of God's sovereignty and praise Him and say, not my will, but yours be done. Now, I don't know where you fall on that scale this week. 
unspeakable joy or debilitating fear or somewhere in between. I do know that this is the prayer that never fails. Say it with me all together, the underlined portion right here, all together. Not what I will, but what you will. Now, contrast that strategy with Jesus' hand-picked followers. The disciples lack the grit to battle. By the way, that's the, uh, that's the header on the right side of our notes if you look there. The disciples lack the grit to battle. The problem is not really that they fell asleep. It, it, these are young men. They're stressed. The problem is they let Jesus down. He, he just wanted them to battle in the most important way possible, to pray for him. All they needed to do, look, all they needed to do was admit their weariness and ask God for empowerment. Look, look up here. Look at this. The verb used for pray in verse 38 is is a form of prosuche. It's a term we examined a a few weeks ago. Herodotus, Aeschylus, they use prosuche for uh, for worship, for worshiping something that is greater than oneself. Um, Unlike the other words for prayer, prosuche is taken from a Greek word for soul, okay? Here's the idea in prosuche. You are laying yourself out. You are bearing your empty soul to God. Prosuke means that you ask from a place of emptiness. This is prayer that recognizes my absolute limitations and offers a request in worship of Yahweh who is so much infinitely greater than I. Listen, listen, here's the summary. The disciples didn't let Jesus down by being too weak. They let him down because he didn't have the grit to admit how weak they were. When, when we read this heartbreaking account of Jesus with Peter, James, and John, I think of this line from Charles Portis's classic, my other favorite grit book, True Grit. One of the characters says, you are a pearl of great price to me, but there are times when you are an almighty trial to those who love you. Good Friday is a very good time to stop and assess yourself with God, examining the ways in which we are a, an almighty trial to him who loves us. Let's do that right now. Um, Here's what I'd like you to do. Let's take a moment, and and if you're willing, if you're able, let's kneel. Just where you're at, kneel. And by the way, those who are at home, um, this is one of the most backwards things in the world. It is more embarrassing and difficult to kneel alone in your home than it is here at church. Isn't that ridiculous? But it's true. Isn't it true? Tell your host. They know. It's true. Right? But right now, if 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 you're willing, I really, really encourage you to take a knee. I'm going to do so. I invite you to join me. And let's let's spend a moment examining how we are an almighty trial to God who loves us. Neil, we got more to study, but let's kneel real quickly. Turn to God Almighty who is with you. And just ask this, in what ways am I letting Jesus down? Reveal any hurtful way in me, Lord. Why don't you do this? Ask God to help you see what weaknesses do I need to confess? Real grit for humans comes from relying on the Lord, recognizing our weakness and letting him empower us. So so what weaknesses am I pretending aren't real? Which which ones do I need to confess?
Father, where am I not allowing the Spirit to guide me? Where am I not allowing the triune God to empower me? Foolishly thinking that I'm going to stand strong on my own. I'm so sorry. And ask God that specifically. Last question, just ask the Lord this. How am I trying to be strong apart from you? Reveal to me, Lord, where I am trying to be strong on my own, apart from you. Some relationship, some task, some sin battle. Now confess all that. And thank God that you can battle. You don't have to lack the grit because Jesus has provided. In his name, all God's people said, amen. All right, have a seat if you would, here and wherever you are. Amen. All right. Now, the disciples' lack of grit has one other serious repercussion. Look look in your text. Peter misses the chance to fortify himself. In fact, Peter steps backwards here. Look, look what Jesus calls him. What does Jesus call him? He says what? Simon. Calls him Simon, not Peter. You see, Pete was originally named Simon until Jesus gave him the title Peter. It, it, it probably went down something like this. Uh, Peter was in the store, and the guy said, Here's your order, sir. A thousand business cards saying, Simon the fisherman. Later that day, Jesus says, Simon, from now on, you shall be known as Peter. I'm kidding. Okay, seriously, in Gethsemane, he doesn't live up to his nickname, Petros, uh, which means the rock, or in Aramaic, Kephos, which means the head. He slides back to being unfortified Simon who lets his leader down. Remember, remember Peter's enthusiasm earlier? He didn't follow it up with fortification for endurance. Look at what Angela Duckworth writes. Enthusiasm is common. Endurance is what, everybody? Rare. All right, that takes us to Jesus' betrayal. My friend Gavin's going to read for us. Go to verse 43, 43 through 52. Here's Jesus' betrayal. Go ahead. While he was sleeping, Jesus, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. With him was, with, was a mob with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. His betrayer had given them a signal. The one I kiss, he said, he's the one. Arrest him and take him away under guard. So when he came, immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. They took him and... They took hold of him and arrested him. One of those who stood by Jerusalem's sword struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I was among you teaching in the temple, and you didn't arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all deserted him and ran away. Now a certain young man, wearing nothing but a linen cloth, was following him. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. Thank you, Gavin. Great job. Thanks. Other texts tell us that Peter is the one. Peter's the one who chops off Malchus, the, uh, the high priest's servant's ear. Um, J- Jesus, Jesus heals him. Judas, the, the Trojan horse, comes with a mob. Now, we know from other accounts that this mob included at least part of the Roman cohort that was stationed on the Temple Mount. Why bring such a massive presence? Because Judas knows, or or he thinks he knows how powerful Jesus is. That's why Judas and the political leaders and the religious leaders here, they're acting together according to shock and awe tactics, which I think are best summarized by Rooster Cogburn and True Grit when he says, 
you go for a man hard enough and fast enough, and he don't have time to think about how many is with him. He thinks about how to get himself, about himself and how he may get clear of the wrath that is about to set down on him. Now, that doesn't work on Jesus. I mean, it's laughable, in fact. He's God the Son. Notice his calm and kind of exasperated tone. Really? Swords and clubs? You come with swords and clubs? Really? The, 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 the best depiction of this comes 2,000 years later uh, in a popular scene in a movie called um, Indiana Jones um, or Raiders of the Lost Ark. Take a look. This is, this is the same idea. Swords and clubs. Look at that sword. All right, there we go. Of course, Jesus didn't kill them, as he certainly could have. He instead let them take him. But, but Judas is shock and awe, though it doesn't work on Jesus. It does work on all the rest. Look what happens. Peter fights, all flee, one is naked. Uh, Peter chops off Malchus's ear. Jesus stopped him from fighting. He healed the servant. Uh, Mark is the only gospel, by the way, to point out that they all ran away and that one poor guy was utterly exposed, quite literally. Listen, listen to J.D. Grasmick's um, recreation of the scene. I think this is well done. Dr. Grasmick says, most interpreters believe this young man was Mark himself. If so, and if he was the son of the house owner where they just had the Last Supper hours before, that night's events may have occurred as follows. Once Jesus and his disciples left Mark's father's house after the Passover, Mark removed his outer cloak and went to bed wrapped in a linen sleeping garment, literally a cloth. Shortly afterward, a servant may have aroused him with the news about Judas's treachery, since Judas and the arresting force had come there. Remember, Judas left from there. He didn't know where they'd gone. Looking for Jesus. Without stopping to dress, Mark rushed to Gethsemane, perhaps to warn Jesus, who had already been arrested when Mark arrived. After all the disciples fled, Mark was following Jesus and his captors into the city when some of them seized Mark, perhaps as a potential witness, but he fled from them naked, leaving his linen sleeping garment in someone's hands, so no one remained with Jesus. Nakedness, by the way, is a really powerful image. It's a powerful image of life running away, life without grit. Now, if that is Mark... He's eventually going to overcome those fears. He will develop grit, but not until he experiences more cowardice along the way. Um, alone, Jesus is immediately taken to an illegal trial before the Sanhedrin. Um, Carissa is going to read 53 through 64. Look at verse 53. They led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes assembled. Peter followed him at a distance right into the high priest's courtyard, and he was sitting with the servants, warming himself by the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for a testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they could, find, they could not find any, for they were giving false testimony against him, and the testimonies did not agree. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, stating, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another not made by hands. Yet their testimony did not agree even on this. Then the high priest stood up before them and questioned Jesus. Don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest questioned him. Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, why do we still need witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. Thank you. I'll go ahead and leave it on. Thank you. Um, Carissa, by the way, had to fill in at the last minute. Hi, Kinsey and Franklin's. Kinsey was supposed to read, but her parents have COVID and, uh, and are, are doing well. But uh, anyway, we miss you. 
Now, each of Jesus' trials actually had three hearings. Uh, Mark, remember Mark's account is breathless. He has a breathless nature in his account, so he only gives the highlights. He grabs three big ideas. First, they lie about Jesus. They, they can't even harmonize their falsehoods. This is a really shoddy performance. Um, th- those lies, though, are very important because the, the false witness and Jesus' silence together fulfill a, a bunch of prophecy. It was foretold the Messiah would suffer in this way. He would be silent in the face of falsehood. That's why Mark emphasizes the lies. Secondly, Mark points out how Jesus asserts his deity. When the high priest finally asks a true question, he answers, I am, which is a claim of godhood. He quotes scripture to show that he is the Messiah, very God, the promised one. Now, now this is not frustration. He didn't just answer because he's frustrated or he suddenly snaps in the face of grilling. This is really significant. He asserts this so he will be killed for the right reason. The, The gauntlet he throws down here is for a very powerful purpose. Jesus is dying as the messianic sacrifice. Think about this. If if a nice guy dies in your place, I mean that's moving. That's really kind. It extends your days on earth. That is truly noble. But it achieves nothing for your eternity. You still die, right? By contrast, Jesus' sacrifice as Messiah fulfills exactly what Isaiah said, that the man of sorrows will heal us forever by his wounds. If Jesus dies as the God-man, it fulfills Daniel's prediction that he is going to return with salvation for all who trust him and judgment for those who refuse him. Look... Good Friday is not just about Jesus giving his life. It's how he dies and as what he dies that fulfills Scripture and makes the difference for all eternity. Long ago, a pastor named John Bunyan was imprisoned for preaching salvation in Messiah Jesus alone. And while he was in prison, Bunyan wrote a a little piece that explains why it is so important that Jesus died as fully God, the Son of Man. Look, here's what Bunyan wrote. He wrestled with justice that thou might havest rest. He wept and mourned that thou mightest laugh and rejoice. He was betrayed that thou mightest go free, was apprehended that thou might escape. He was condemned that thou mightest be justified and was killed that thou mightest live. He wore a crown of thorns that thou mightest wear a crown of glory and was nailed to the cross with his arms wide open to show with what freeness all his merit shall be stowed on the coming soul. Among all the material available to him, Mark selects these little statements of Jesus' deity. He does so because all these blessings disappear if Jesus isn't God. Now, because, I know, but because Jesus points out his deity, they condemn him. Now, one thing to point out, all in the text there, that, that, that doesn't mean every member of the Sanhedrin voted for his death. It, this is merely the way verdicts were delivered in those days. You know, in, in, our, in our day, our Supreme Court issues a, a number with their ruling. In a 6-3 decision, the Supreme Court decided, right? We even allow for dissenting opinions to be given. That wasn't the case in the ancient world. Courts just offered their decisions as a group. There were never any details. All right, now we get to the fulfillment of Jesus' fourth prediction. His fourth prediction was Peter's denial of Jesus. Cooper's going to read to us starting in verse 65. Take a look. Then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to beat him, saying, Prophesy. The temple servants also took him and slapped him. While Peter was in the courtyard below, one of the high priest's maid servants came. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You are also with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. Then he went out to the entryway and, and a rooster crowed. When the maid servant saw him, she began to tell those standing nearby, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing there said to Peter again, You certainly are one of them, since you're a Galilean. 
Then he started to curse and swear, I don't know this man you are talking about. Immediately a rooster crowed a, th a second time, and Peter remembered when Jesus had spoken the word to him. Before the rooster crows twice, he will deny me three times, and he broke down and wept. Thank you, Coop. Great job. Great job. Prophesying, uh, do you notice the very beginning of that text? Prophesying is brought up again. Mark, Mark includes that for this reason. He wants us to remember the points earlier from Jesus' four predictions. Remember the four things Jesus promised earlier. All are going to scatter. Jesus will rise from the dead. He'll meet them in Galilee. And Peter will deny Jesus three times. So Peter has seen the first prophecy come true. They all did scatter. Shouldn't he have a keen eye out for the other predictions as well? Yes, but... Just as we often are, Simon is so caught up in fear that he can't think. And thus Peter denies Jesus to save himself. He denies any portion with Jesus at all. When you go to Israel someday with one of our trips, you will see one of my favorite bronze sculptures in the world, the denial of Peter at the place where that may have happened. Earlier in Mark, we noted Jesus' first prediction about his passion leads directly to the requirements for discipleship. Jesus said this earlier in the Gospel of Mark. There are three things that he said are, are what you do to follow him. You deny yourself, you take up your cross, and you follow Jesus. Now, here's what's wild. Every, I know, it's awesome. Every one of those statements is in a present continuous sense. In Mark's Greek, every one of those is in a present continuous sense. That means it's something that you're always doing. So deny is to disavow any connection with one's flesh. Take up your cross. That means you welcome exposure. You welcome minimization from the world. And, and follow Jesus means you're following him, especially in obedience. That is how a disciple lives. Now look, look, Peter does the exact opposite. He denies Jesus to save his flesh. Now at this moment, Peter becomes a portrait of us all. In every crisis, in every crisis in our lives, we will either deny our own flesh, our own sinful personal power, or we will deny Jesus, the Lord who, who leads and provides us. It's one or the other. Either deny your flesh or you deny Jesus. Okay, all that went on while Jesus was with the Sanhedrin. Now, Mark gives a summary of Jesus' illegal trial before Pilate. Ben, come on up and read for us chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. Jesus before Pilate. As soon... Yeah, go ahead. As soon as it was morning, having held a meeting with the elders, scribes, and the hold of the Sanhedrin, the chief priest tied Jesus up, led him away, and handed him over to, the, to Pilate. So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, You say so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. Pilate questioned him again, Aren't you going to answer? Look how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer, and so Pilate was amazed. At the festival, Pilate used to release for the people a prisoner whom they requested. There was one named um, Barabbas who was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them as was his custom. Pilate answered them, Do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? For he knew it was because of the envy that the chief priest had handed him over. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that they released Barabbas to them instead. Pilate asked to them again, Then what do you want me to do with the one that you call the king of the Jews? Again they shouted, Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barbaros to them, and having Jesus flogged, he handed them over to be crucified. Thank Excuse you, Pilate. Very much. Thanks, Ben. Jesus forces Pilate to marvel. That's the, that's the thing I put in your notes here. I know, I know. 
There is much, much more to dig out from here, but this is the biggest thing. This is the biggest nugget. Jesus amazes the Roman procurator. Pontius Pilate was amazed by the grit, by the courtroom savvy of this beaten rabbi. Jesus' coolness here reminded me of a courtroom scene in the awesome book, True Grit. Um, Rooster Cogburn is likewise in an unfair, tight spot in a courtroom. Uh, Mr. Gowdy, the, uh, the attorney, says, I believe you testified that you backed away from Aaron Wharton. It was a man that Rooster had killed a criminal. Cogburn said, that's right. You were backing away. Yes, sir. He had that axe raised. Which direction were you going? I always go backwards when I'm backing up. Like Marshall Cogburn, Jesus keeps his wits, which is a real test of grit. And that's what amazes Pontius Pilate. Specifically, the Greek says, Pilate was thaumazo. Uh, what we translate amaze is thaumazo, and, and, and it means amaze, but there's, there's more to it than that. There's more going on in Mark's word choice. In, in, in old, old Greek literature, thaumazo was used of miracles. Uh, old writers like Homer used thaumazo to, to describe being wowed by something miraculous. Uh, later Greek writers like, uh, like Hesiod used thaumazo as something awesome that demands a response, usually a response of belief. So, for example, Hesiod tells the story of a great warrior, a great Greek warrior who amazes everyone on the battlefield, and so everybody trusts that warrior. Thaumazo leads them to, to trust. Pilate should have responded to Jesus with trust. He was properly shocked, but he didn't follow up with belief. Instead, he releases Barabbas and crucifies Jesus, which takes us to the ultimate Good Friday text. Claire, come on up. Read about Jesus' crucifixion starting in verse 16. Alrighty. The soldiers led him away into the palace, that is, the governor's residence, and called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns, and put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. They were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him. Getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him. They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, and they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. They then crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him was, The King of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who were passing by yelled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha, the one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. Thank you, Claire. Well done. Super. His death fulfills the old story. Look, the Old Testament contained dozens of prophecies that are fulfilled in Jesus' crucifixion. Mark just focuses on a few. Here's what, here's what Mark zeroes in on. Isaiah chapter 50 had predicted that Messiah would be hit, he would be spat upon. Isaiah 22, Psalm 22, said the Messiah would be mutilated, he would be scourged. Psalm 22 also predicted that they would cast lots for his, for his clothing. Psalm 69 foretold the, the offering of a, of a nasty, deadening drink. 
Psalm 109 specifically pointed out that people would shake their heads in a sign of of contempt, shake their heads at Messiah's death. Uh, Moses said in a couple of different places that a human curse would come on anyone who hung on a tree. Uh, David said Messiah would, would, would die among criminals. He would be gloated over. Mark has all those in mind. And and he notices how the actual events orchestrated by Jesus, who is fully in charge here, that they perfectly complete what had been told long ago. But Mark's also looking ahead because his death includes the rest of the story, salvation. Isaiah 53, 5, perfect example of the old story leading to the rest of the story. I'd like you to read it with me, please. Join me on the underlying text, Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. But he was pierced because of our rebellion crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. As Isaiah foretold, Jesus' death paid for our sin. We cannot earn that salvation. It is the rest of the story, and it is made possible because of what Jesus did on the cross. In Mr. Portis's classic book, True Grit, the heroine points out, probably my favorite part of the whole book, she says, you must pay for everything in this world one way or another. There is nothing free except the grace of God. You cannot earn that or deserve it. Close quote. Amen. Let's pray in response. Pray with me. Father, there's a very good chance that wherever they may be, there are people studying with me tonight who are not believers in Jesus. I pray that changes right now. Friend, listen, you cannot earn the grace of God. It is because of what Jesus did. We, like sheep, have gone astray. But Jesus... Jesus fulfills the old story and opens up the rest of the story. Salvation. He did die. He died on that cross. More on that on Sunday. He rose from the dead. A lot more of that on Sunday. So that anyone who believes in him could have everlasting life. When Jesus said that, he used a word for everlasting that means effervescent, bubbling, going on and on and on, a non-stop mineral water. That's your life if you trust Jesus. Do so right now. Rely on nothing else but him. Put your trust in Jesus as Savior. He died for you. He rose from the dead. Trust him. Let's do this. If you just trusted Jesus as Savior and, and you're elsewhere, uh, make sure you interact. Your host, um, Jose or Carol, they're going to tell you about a, a way you can respond on a card. Please do so. If you're here in the auditorium, raise your hand if you just trusted Jesus. Good for you. Amen. Father, I pray for these believers in Jesus that we Christians will daily trust Jesus with true, with God-empowered grit That means that we're strong enough to recognize our own weaknesses, that we deny self instead of Jesus. And I beg you for this. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.